Welcome to Citizens Climate Radio. In this show, we highlight people's stories, we celebrate your successes, and together we share strategies for talking about climate change. I'm your host, Peterson Toscano. Welcome to episode 61 of Citizens Climate Radio, a project of Citizens Climate Education. This episode is airing on Friday, June 25th, 2021. In our show today, you will hear a success story about a conference that some said would be a total failure. John Clark and Madeline Perra tell us about the first ever Citizens Climate Catholic Conference. In the art house, engineer and game designer Katie Patrick shares industry secrets about how to motivate people to action. She will also tell us about the big mistake that many of us make all the time. But first, Let's dive headfirst into conflict. In her new book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out, journalist Amanda Ripley introduces us to people pursuing noble causes. I spent four years trying to find people who were trapped in pretty unpleasant conflicts of all kinds and got to a better place. Not to say they necessarily resolved all the conflict, that doesn't usually happen, but they got to a place where they were productive, much more effective in their, in their movement, whatever it was, and much less miserable in their own heads. So finding those people and figuring out what do they have in common? What are the patterns and what can we learn from that to help other people make that journey? Hearing about her own career as a journalist, she is the perfect person to explore this topic for us. I spent 10 years at Time Magazine working in Washington, New York, and Paris, which was just an amazing adventure at the time. You know, we had bureaus all over the world. I mostly wrote about human behavior. I often wrote about disasters of all kinds, terrorist attacks, hurricanes, you name it. For some reason, that became my, <laughs> my, my beat. That is what led to my first book, which is about human behavior and disasters and what we can learn from the experience of survivors. The new book is called High Conflict why we get trapped and how we get out. And that's about how people get out of pretty awful conflicts, personal or political. The stories she tells immediately drew me in. Here is Amanda Ripley reading from High Conflict. The Conflict Trap. In the Miracle Mile district of Los Angeles, there exists a prehistoric death trap gurgling away right off Wilshire Boulevard, a block from an international House of Pancakes restaurant. The La Brea Tar Pits, as this place is named, can look benign, like a small, dark lake, one which bubbles up occasionally. But scientists have found more than three million bones trapped in the depths of these pits, including well-preserved, nearly complete skeletons of massive mammals. They've found mammoths, sloths, and more than 2,000 saber-toothed tigers. How did this happen? How did thousands of the most powerful predators on the planet all get drawn into the same small pit? And why couldn't they get out? The La Brea Tar Pits is a living quagmire, a place where natural asphalt has been gurgling up from the ground since the last ice age. What may have happened, researchers now believe, is a fairly diabolical cycle. One day, tens of thousands of years ago, a large mammal, like an ancient bison, lumbered into the tar pits. It quickly became stuck. Hooves anchored in the sludge of asphalt and began grunting in distress. It only took a few centimeters of that muck to immobilize a large mammal. 
The bison's alarm attracted the attention of predators, like, say, the now extinct dire wolf, Canis direus, fearsome dog. Dire wolves are social animals, like coyotes and humans, so a few of these wolves probably came trotting upon the scene together and, naturally, pounced on the trapped bison. What luck! Then, the wolves themselves got stuck. And so the dire wolves howled in frustration, attracting more attention. More creatures arrived. Eventually, the wolves died of hunger or their causes, and their rotting carcasses drew scavengers, some of whom also got stuck. The population of the doomed grew geometrically. A single carcass could remain visible for up to five months, attracting more unwitting victims before finally sinking out of sight into the murky underwater crypt. To date, scientists have pulled the bones of 4,000 dire wolves out of the tar pits. Conflict, once it escalates past a certain point, operates just like the La Brea tar pits. It draws us in, appealing to all kinds of normal and understandable needs and desires. But once we enter, we find we can't get out. The more we flail about, braying for help, the worse the situation gets. More and more of us get pulled into the muck without even realizing how much worse we're making our own lives. That's the main difference between high conflict and good conflict. It's not usually a function of the subject of the conflict, nor is it about the yelling or the emotion. It's about the stagnation. In healthy conflict, there's movement. Questions get asked. Curiosity exists. There can be yelling, too. But healthy conflict leads somewhere. It feels more interesting to get to the other side than to stay in it. In high conflict, the conflict is the destination. There's nowhere else to go. Amanda told me how easy it is for us to get trapped into high conflict. Even the most virtuous of us can fall victim to it. I followed a politician in California, a former gang leader in Chicago, an environmental activist in England. Every single one. People went into the conflict with really good, noble intentions that are perfectly understandable, and they ended up working against the thing they held most dear without realizing it. You know, so this is the probably the most profound, <laughs> the most profound thing I have had to learn about this is that in high conflict, you will eventually mimic the behavior of your adversary. You will do the thing that got you into the conflict to begin with, and it's diabolical, but you won't even know you're doing it most of the time. So when we fall into this high conflict trap, how do we get out? So you can cultivate good conflict. And one of the ways you do that is to get very curious about understanding people you disagree with, even as you continue to totally disagree. And that is kind of counterintuitive for a lot of people in our culture today, because it feels like even trying to understand other people is somehow makes you complicit. Somehow you're tolerating their bigoted or ignorant beliefs just by trying to understand them. When you really try to understand someone, truly, they don't mistake it for agreement. That's in our heads. They know you don't agree. But they open up. You can literally see it on their face. Like it's an incredible thing to see where when people feel heard and understood, even in profound disagreement, they start to lower their guard, say less extreme antagonistic things and be more open 
to information they don't want to hear. It is literally the key to the kingdom of conflict. And what about climate change in particular? How can we engage in more thoughtful, effective conversations and relationships without stirring up unhelpful conflict? Yeah, that is the question. The question is not, how can we get them to agree with us? The question is, what is the understory of this conflict? Every conflict has the thing we talk about and argue about to death, round and round, not getting anywhere. And then the thing it's really about. Often, like with climate, the thing it's really about is fear and identity. So when you threaten someone's sense of belonging in the world, it is very hard <laughs> for them to hear what you are saying, even when it's true and important and urgent. So then what? It is much better to speak directly to that understory and get really curious about it and try to understand what is that fear about. A nice study that you may know about by Matt Feinberg and Rob Willer at Stanford about the language people use on the different sides of political debates. And if people on the left here in the States use the language of purity and sanctity to talk about why we need to protect the earth from climate change, conservatives hear that. It resonates. It, it's hearable to them. When they just talk about fairness, it is not so hearable. Or care, it is not so hearable. There are these sort of six moral foundations of political speech that Jonathan Haidt has written about beautifully in his book, The Righteous Mind, which I highly recommend to anyone who hasn't read it. It sort of helps you make sense of things that don't make sense at all right now in politics. But speak the language that doesn't threaten people's identity, if you can. I mean, it's not always going to be possible, right? But know what it is, at least. Know what the conflict is really about. Many of us doing climate work can feel angry towards companies that pollute and those politicians who refuse to act. We can also feel frustrated by other climate advocates who do not support the approaches we're pursuing. When we come to the places of understanding, agreement, or compromise, what role does forgiveness play? You know, it's funny because I think there's certain words that I tried to avoid in the book, and maybe maybe that was a mistake. You know, maybe that's sort of uh, cowardly looking back on it. Forgiveness is one of them, as is compromise. These are words that I think sometimes mean different things to different people and immediately shut down the kind of curiosity I'm really trying to incite, which I think we really need. Like, I would much rather curiosity than compromise in most conflict in my life. Compromise has to happen. It does happen. But it's sort of an order of operations problem. And the same with forgiveness. Forgiveness, the kind that allows you, the person doing the forgiving, to be free, a little bit more free than you were, is about good conflict, is about getting out of that feedback loop, that vortex of losing sleep, of blame, of contempt, those things really poison us. And so that's important to let that go for your own sanity and peace of mind. That doesn't mean you don't hold someone accountable though, right? So these words are very tricky. And I think it's important for me to think in terms of story, because to me, stories are what we remember. And then we go off and 
revert back to our old <laughs> our old default reactions to words like compromise or forgiveness or peace or conflict, whatever. For me, when I followed Curtis Toller, who was a pretty high-ranking gang leader in Chicago, who spent many years in a vendetta against a rival gang because of really painful losses that he had experienced as a teenager. He had very good reasons for that vendetta, for his anger, right? For his rage. And now he spends his life trying to get people to see that they're fighting the wrong enemy. And it's not that they forgive the real enemy. It's that they see a bigger picture in these kinds of vendettas. The person who suffers is the person you're trying most to protect, ultimately. So forgiveness is, is very important. What I'm most interested in is change. I am a huge believer in people's ability to change, in culture's ability to change, for better and for worse. But seeing that change in people around me, in people I've written about, had the privilege to follow, makes me never want to give up on anyone, including myself. And that's something a little different than forgiveness, right? The book is High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. It is written by Amanda Ripley and published by Simon & Schuster. You can find it wherever books are sold. Learn more about Amanda Ripley and her other books. Just go to her website, amandaripley.com. That's amandaripley.com. Now it is time for the art house. As artists, advocates, activists, and change agents, our greatest hope is that the climate-related work we do leads to real results. For many of us, though, this is an act of faith. We hope that our sincerity coupled with a creative approach will move someone to action. But how do we know for sure? How do we measure success? To help us explore these important questions, I invited Katie Patrick, an environmental engineer and software designer. I grew up in a beautiful part of Australia called the Mornington Peninsula, right down the bottom. She now lives in the high-tech world of California's Silicon Valley. Bye. Bay Area, San Francisco, Silicon Valley standards. I'm very normal. Nothing weird about me. My engineering degree is not weird. It doesn't intimidate anybody. My programming skills are average to below average. I just really sort of like fit in as a very normal person in this particular community of sort of deep nerds and, you know, um, machine learning PhDs and all the crazy stuff that people get up to. Success came early to Katie, and from that success, she learned many important lessons. Well, I had one really big, fabulous success was that I had a green media company that was received $1 million in venture capital from the Murdoch family or the children of Rupert Murdoch, who's the Fox News guy. This was about 10, a bit bit over 10 years ago. And then being able to invest that money in my dream and then build the company out of that was a really fabulous experience and a great way to spend my my 20s and I got to learn how to actually build a company to a you know over a million dollars revenue and produce this type of material and content that I wanted to do. I kind of think everything is really just a draft and you don't really know if something's a, a success if it's going to turn into a failure or a failure can turn into a success. So I think it's just sort of part of the journey, part of the road. But Katie does believe and expect we can be successful in changing the world. For years, Katie spoke to people about how to make real change happen. 
She then collected her findings and published the book, How to Save the World, How to Make Changing the World the Greatest Game You Ever Played. I will share with you super helpful nuggets about climate communication that Katie outlines in her book. If you only work on doom messaging and fear-based messaging, the brain can actually go into a fear-based state where it can lose 30% of its cognitive capacity and its creative thinking. Like if you're really stressed out, the first things to go is creative imagination thought. If that's the emotional state you're in and that is the messages that you're spreading to your community, you're not going to be cultivating the type of ideas and energy and optimism that you'll actually be able to do the things that create the amazing world in your project. You're going to be missing out on ideas. You're going to be missing out on positive energy. And you're going to be missing out on a cohesive vision to bring all of your employees, your donors, your social media followers, all the people around you that you want to cultivate towards a dream. You're not going to be able to harness that energy if you're not imagining a great destination of where you are asking everybody to go. In her book, Katie writes about why painting a positive vision of the future is a powerful tool to engage the public. There's a good reason that people need a positive vision of the future. Our brains are wired to have what is called optimism bias. It means that each of us believes that we are less at risk of experiencing a negative event compared to other people. When we tell an optimistic story about a future world, quite simply, everyone will be more likely to believe it is going to happen to them and want to learn more about it and engage more deeply with anything related to this future scenario. Instead of speaking about the impacts of climate change, we will find audiences will light up when we talk about the impacts of climate solutions. Just as I was feeling I was on track in the way I talk about climate change, Katie dispelled my enthusiasm when she talked about the big mistake. Most people think that if you want to change the world, you need to educate people about an issue. And then the education will make people really emotionally concerned. And then that emotional concern will lead to the behavior you want them to take. Maybe it's going vegan or a company, you know, switching their purchasing from non-recycled to recycled paper or whatever it is. And I think we've all made this mistake. I definitely did it for the first 15 years of my career as a content creator. There's this phenomenon that happens that is studied by academic behavioral psychology researchers, and it's very easy to test. That if you take 50 people and you test them on what they know about climate change and energy efficiency and how much they care about it, and then you put them through a learning experience, maybe it's a two-hour documentary or a lecture, and they, they learn about all the glaciers, the ecosystems, whatever, they'll be concerned. They'll be more knowledgeable and they'll be more emotionally concerned. If you track their behavior for the next six months, you will find that they almost do absolutely nothing in terms of their behavior. That's because when you go out to educate people and to make people concerned, you will be successful in educating people and making them concerned. But that's a completely different thing to achieve than to get somebody to do an action. So this gets to the heart of a question that so often comes up for artists engaged in issues like climate change. How do you know that you're being successful? 
The organizations that hire us often want to know what the impact of our work will be. Is inspiring people enough, especially in a climate change world that requires massive changes to happen quickly? As artists and content creators, do we have a moral responsibility to measure outcomes? So if you really want to affect the world, you have to look at your own project to see where you're falling into this, this problem. It's called the value action gap, that we have values that don't turn into actions. And to start looking at it like a behavior designer. I am trying to design a behavior to get people to grow more of their own vegetables uh, or to get people to ride their bike more or give up their fuel guzzling car. How do I design for the behavior? And that's an entire science in itself. There are a lot of different ways to do it. Educating people and getting them concerned is actually very weak drivers, maybe even not a driver at all. For me, as an artist and the producer of this podcast, I do not exaggerate when I say her words created an existential crisis for me. Am I going about this work all wrong? Should I stop making this podcast? It doesn't mean that anyone should stop making you know, documentaries or festivals or events or podcasts or any of that uh, content-based stuff. But you've got to think of it in terms of the academic method, that your idea is a hypothesis and your hypothesis needs to have a causal link. That's what all hypotheses have. They have causality. And then they can show evidence that they're working. So you've got to think if you want to affect climate change and your first thing is like, well, I'm going to do a, a, a play or an animation or a documentary about climate change. That's really a hypothesis. That creative project will drive change, will affect the numbers. And then you think about the causal link and you think, well, what's the causal link? Like, what am I actually doing? What is this thing I'm dreaming up? How is that affecting people and how is it going to affect the numbers? The reason why to explain those, those three things is to ask people to not jump to the conclusion that you should make content. That's your hypothesis. Start off, reverse engineer it. <laughs> As a creative person, this all feels so clinical and cold and calculating. It is so not how I think and go about creating. It's just a really a re a reframing, a remixing, kind of like moving the puzzle pieces around with content and putting it all like in an arrow towards driving an action. And then your hypothesis, going back to where we started, the, the hypothesis for what makes change happen is go, well, our hypothesis is that if we go into people's houses and we show them how they compare and then we show them, maybe you show them a five minute video that's very compelling rather than a big two hour documentary. And you've got all of the measurements, you've got the progress bar, you've got all the calls to action that show examples of other people in the community. It's called social norms. And your plan is to get people to sign up. So it's not just getting people to listen or learn. What Katie describes requires collaboration between artists, designers, and content creators, along with community leaders. It means I can't work in my own creative bubble all by myself. I need to be grounded in a community so that I can be creative alongside a larger process. There are many creatives already doing this sort of work. I think of Lynn Newman with Artichoke Dance Company in New York City, or Elizabeth Dowd with Climakaze Miami. From them, I learned that doing climate art not only impacts the art we do, but also our relationship to the world around us. Yet, 
as artists, <laughs> we know our creativity and art often gets misshapen and is ineffective when we push it too hard to meet an activist goal or to fit it into a campaign. So I'm definitely curious to hear your response to the big mistake. It's got me thinking and retooling my own work. Kitty's book provides insights based on studies around behavior and psychology. It's practical and loaded with specific examples and helpful graphics. So many magical things happen in conversations with Katie Patrick. I encourage you to check out her book. How to save the world. How to make changing the world the greatest game you've ever played. You can get it from my website at katiepatrick.com. It's spelled K-A-T-I-E. You can also sign up to my website. There's a whole bunch of free downloads you can get to learn more of these techniques to better save the world. That website again is katiepatrick.com. If you have an idea for the art house, feel free to contact me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Our good news story this month is about a very special conference Citizens Climate Lobby organized for Catholics in the USA and beyond. Madeline Para, president of CCL, shares this good news along with John Clark. John is CCL's Appalachia Regional Coordinator, and he developed the idea for the conference. I thought originally about doing a, a multi-faith conference, and I kind of quickly figured out it's not an easy thing to do is put together a multi-faith conference. We kind of refocused to Catholics because Catholics make up about 30% of Congress. I wanted to empower Catholics in CCL to put on a, a conference, energize and, and motivate Catholics nationwide to, to reach out to their Catholic members of Congress. Part of the good news is how many people were interested just based on over 700 registering and over 300 coming. One of our members was very skeptical that we could put on such a, a big conference. He said, you know, we'll never get a, a bishop to come speak with us. And not only did we get a bishop, we got two bishops to speak with us. Having two different bishops come and, and speak to us and both of them support carbon pricing and a carbon tax so eloquently is lovely big news. We had registrants from 17 different countries. Along with that, how many new people came along and, and people from outside the organization who looked very interested in us? Catholic constituents were given some really great concrete ideas for how they could play a role in working with Catholic members of Congress. I'm feeling really good. Our Catholic action team is, is feeling empowered. They're going on to do other things now. It's always nice for me when my faith and my work in CCL intersect. Inside of me, they intersect. It is part of how I stay resilient. And, you know, people ask me, like, how do I do it? Part of it is staying grounded in the idea that I'm not doing it alone. And that doesn't totally mean I'm not doing it with other people. Perhaps there's other forces at work that are helping too. I have the utmost admiration for both Madeline and John. It was John who first brought me into CCL back in 2013. Madeline was the person on staff along with Ricky Bradley who encouraged me to start this podcast back in 2016. Many thanks to both of them for being on the show today. 
If you have good news you want to share on the show, email me, radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. Here at Citizens Climate Education, we have a solution that will greatly reduce pollution, which leads to climate change. We believe that putting a price on carbon will make a huge difference. We want to tell you more about it. So visit cclusa.org slash price on carbon. That's cclusa.org slash price on carbon. Thank you so much for joining me for episode 61 of Citizens Climate Radio. Citizens Climate Radio is written and produced by me, Peterson Toscano. Other technical support from Ricky Bradley and Brett Cease. Social media assistance from Ashley Hunt Mortorano, Flannery Winchester, and Steve Balk. Moral support from Madeline Para. The music on today's show comes from epidemicsound.com. Many thanks to everyone who's been sharing Citizens Climate Radio with friends and colleagues. You can find our show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at northernspiritradio.org. Join the discussion at our Facebook group page. Just look for Citizens Climate Radio on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at Citizens Radio. That's Citizens, the letter C, radio. Citizens Radio. Feel free to tweet at me directly at P2Sun. Visit the blog over at citizensclimatelobby.org to see our show notes and find links to our guests. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. 